1: Britflix.com podcast It's the Britflix.com podcast Hello, this is Stuart Wright, host of the Britflix.com podcast Just a quick note before you listen to the main event with Stephen Jones, editor of The Art of Horror and Illustrated History Um there was a little bit of broadband mischief, which means that the voice of Stephen goes a bit roboty at times. Um, but I think the understanding of what he's saying holds together. So I've left as much of it I can in. I've edited some, and we in, we endeavoured to uh, repeat sections. In fact, broadband cut out completely, which is really annoying, and so we had to re-record little bits. But on the on the Overall, I think it was um, i think it was a, a damn fine conversation and I wanted to keep as much of it as was rather than keep having to revisit it. So um, on to the main event, my interview with Stephen Jones, editor of The Art of Horror. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright. And today we're going to take a little detour away from film and talk about... The Art of Horror, and in particular, an illustrated history of that is that now a book edited by my guest Stephen Jones. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Stuart. Um, by way of introduction, and and in terms of what I've just told the listener what the name of the book is, it's like if those qualifications for someone to to sort of be working on a book like this, it's sort of your your kind of illustrious career within horror would. Um, would seem like you've got like the MBA and the MS the, the MA the PhD and the lot in in terms of horror you know you've you sort of a winner of three world fantasy awards international horror awards bram stoker awards 20 21 british fantasy awards that's that's kind of like... I think
2: so. something like that yeah i was going to say I'm sorry i was going to say um basically that's how i got the job um <laughs> uh, the pub, the publisher came to me and uh, i was recommended to them they already had a title, The Art of Horror, for the book. Okay. And they were kind of looking around for someone to do it, and somebody had recommended me, and so they went to my website, and then they came to me and they said, look, you know, we think you are the guy we need to do this book. And I said... Really, I said, They said, yeah, we, it's going to be a big coffee table book. It's full of artwork and posters and book covers and stuff like that. Would you be willing to write this book um, in like three months? And we we'll want it out for Halloween 2015. And I say, well, that's great. I'm really, really pleased, you know, you came to me. But unfortunately, I'm doing seven other books for that time of year. And there's no way I could fit something like this into my schedule. Because the research period alone would take more than three months. Yeah, And so... They, they were very nice, and they they, they said, "Well, okay, you, know, you sure we, you sure we can't change your mind or anything?" And I said, "No, no, no. You know, um, I'd love to do it, but um, I've just got all these other contracts I've got to do beforehand." So that was it, really. And then I started thinking about it, and and what you just said really echoed with me to be honest with you because i went you know what i don't really want anybody else doing this book <laughs> you know, I, I want my name on the art of horror if it's going to be the definitive art of horror book i sure really should be me um you know i've been doing this stuff all my life um, and when i say all my life i mean pretty much all my life i mean i started watching horror movies and reading famous monsters of filmland and stuff back in the mid 60s when i was still a teenager um, I started buying the books, hardcovers, paperbacks, that kind of stuff for the late 60s, early 70s. By 1973 or 4, I was writing for movie fanzines and comics fanzines and horror fanzines and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and now I got a job. I got a job in TV and movies for 20 years. I was a, a director and a producer and a writer. Um, but at the same time, I was also working on magazines and conventions and things like that. And that parlayed into a career in doing my own books. And so for the last 40 years, I've actually done something like 130, 637 books. Um, So as I say to people, I, I do what I love and I love what I do. (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's just the best thing in the world. I'm doing the job I always wanted to do, which is basically working in the horror field. And so when this particular project came up, I thought, oh, man, I, I really shouldn't pass this over. It'd be ridiculous. So I went back to them. I, I said, look, you know, I've got an idea. I still haven't got time to write this book. But I've kind of worked out a way where we can still do it. And we can, you know, get the book out. And it it was a tight schedule. I mean, the problem with a book like this is, you know, you're only given a certain amount of time. You've got to do all the clearances. You've got to do the research. And also, you've got to write a lot as well. So I put together a proposal where I broke the book down into ten chapters. Mm. Each chapter was a different aspect of the horror genre so each chapter was about vampires or werewolves or zombies or aliens or psycho killers this kind of thing yeah then i went look you know i i've been around long enough now that i know the top people in the genre so what if i then gave you you know 10 people i would recommend to write each of those chapters who i would trust to write each of those chapters probably better than i could because you know they're experts in their particular fields and then what I will do is oversee the entire book. I'll get my friend Neil Gaiman to write an introduction. And we've got a package, basically. Mm. And they they came back to me and said, that would be terrific. We'd love to do that. And I thought, hey, this is going to be a breeze. This is going to be easy. I'm going to knock this one out two months. Easy money. <laughs> it took most of last year I worked on this book um, the articles came in pretty quickly, and all I had to do was basically a light edit on those. Yeah. Um, the, the various contributors to the book also had to write a couple of sort of sidebar articles on certain themes within the themes they were working in, which was fine. Yeah. And that that was easy. That was, that was that was the basic bit. Then it started coming down to this. Thousands and thousands and thousands of images out there. I mean, I'm very lucky. As you can imagine, over 40 years, I've got a huge personal collection of books and magazines and pulps and film posters and lobby cards and everything in the world. Yeah all gathering dust in my house. Um, so it was a great opportunity to be able to use a lot of stuff from my collection to allow people to see stuff that they may never get a chance to see, yeah. uh, particularly with the literature, with the books and the, and the old magazines from the 20s and 30s and the comic book covers and things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, so you know, But it, it's not so much, and I always say this with any book I do, Stuart, it's not so much what you put in a book that makes it good, it's what you leave out of a book. So, you know, you're given 30, 40 images and you've got to pick the one or two that sum up what you want to say. So that was one area of the book we were working on, finding all these brilliant, beautiful posters and, and covers. And again, part of my brief from the publisher was we want to see stuff people haven't seen before in a book. So I hope yourself, as a horror aficionado, there's stuff in there you've never seen before, maybe. You know, foreign movie posters or things. You think, Christ, I've never seen the Japanese poster for Carlos The Ghoul, for example. And things like that. Because these things blew me away.
1: No, 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 without um, a doubt. No, that's, that's, that's the... When you do that first kind of flip through, that's the bit that just astounds you. Really. Yeah,
2: it's not, it's not the same old, same old you see in no, reference. No, books. no, no, no. Um, so that, that was the first pass through. Then we have another pass on top of that, which is basically original art. Because obviously it's called the art of horror. They wanted to get some original art in it. Well, the same way I know writers, I also know a lot of artists out there over the years. Because obviously I have covers done for my books and things. Mm -hmm. So I gave them a list of about 50 artists who personal friends or acquaintances of mine. And I suggested artwork that they could use. And then we added to that from the internet. We found people out there I'd never heard of who we were, we were doing terrific work in, in, in horror, but they're not being published anyway. They're just publishing on their own websites or their own blogs and things. So we've ended up also putting in something like 104 artists with their original work in the book. And so those scans are from the original paintings in most cases. So you've got wow. this incredible level of art as well on top of that. And then the final pass for me, and this is the one that nearly killed me, was they said, and, of course, you've got to write all the captions in the book. Oh! And each <laughs> caption has to be a minimum
1: of 100 words. Yeah, I was going to say, they're, they're, they're pretty comprehensive, aren't they? Yeah,
2: yeah. And and I, I went, oh, OK, well, it should be the Easy. And so it started. And so so I found myself literally writing caption after caption after caption every day. In the meantime, I was also mostly laying out the book because obviously I knew which images should be the hero image on a page and which we could, you know, make a full page or a double page or whatever. Mm. So then I decided what I would do is the captions would become like little mini essays. Rather than just a caption, it would be a little mini essay that would tell you something about what you're looking at that maybe is not included in the main article. Mm -hmm. And then we got to a point where because I had laid out the book in a certain way, and we had a certain amount of space for the captions, I then started rewriting all the captions so they fitted the space we had exactly. So if you look through the book, they pretty much end within a line or two of each other. So I would go in and update them, I'd expand them, I'd just make them all kind of look very neat on the page, which I didn't really have to do, but it just makes the book look a lot better, and it really does. It really is attractive. So each one of those captions for the, I don't know what we've got, maybe 700 images, possibly more in the book, is an individual little essay in itself, in 100, 120, 150 words. Essay. It's really quite interesting.
1: No, no, no. It reminds me. I mean, in a way, you've gone to the the sort of amount of trouble that people you often see at art galleries. You know, with with text that's attached to a picture. You know. Yeah.
2: Well, that was the idea. I thought to myself, as I said earlier, if somebody's going to do it and it's going to be me, this is my (laughs) one shot at it. Let's make it really, really cool and really interesting for me as well. I mean, I found a lot of this very interesting to do because. When I started out, I mean, obviously I knew quite a lot of this stuff, but, you know, I don't know everything. And so I was researching things, I was looking up stuff that I wasn't quite aware of, particularly to do with art... Mm. And learning all sorts of new stuff and all sorts of cool stuff, which I wanted to try and shoehorn into the book somewhere and so it was the captions that allowed me to do that. I mean the other great thing about the book is we do have um, these little sidebar pieces and although we got lots of great sidebar pieces from the from the other writers in the book, mm. there were certain areas which I felt were key. Elements of horror, which hadn't been covered in the main articles. I mean, good example: Lon Chaney Sr.'s *London After Midnight*, one of the great lost horror movies of all time. It's it's always been something I've been fascinated by, like what happened to it, where is it, could there still be something out there somewhere? And there's some wonderful, wonderful imagery from that movie, wonderful posters and lobby cards and ads and things, which I wanted to get into the book. So I ended up writing a page. Just on London after midnight, and oh, using all okay. this great imagery to illustrate it. Um, another one of my favourites is arsenic and old lace. And what well, again? What fascinating! I mean, I love the Frank Capra movie with Cary Grant and Raymond Massey and Peter Laurie. but I also loved the, you know, the Boris Karloff stage version and the Bela Lugosi stage version and things like that. So I got to do a whole page on the history of arsenic and old lace, using <laughs> old playbills, old publicity pictures, and whatever, because I felt well. If you're, if you're somebody coming to this book and you don't know a lot about horror. I want you to go and, and go and find a copy of Arsenic and Old Lace* and watch it, you know, watch the movie, the Warner Brothers movie, because it's terrific and it's all part of the heritage, the rich heritage that's a horror genre. So these, I mean, when I say it was hard work, I have to say it is probably in the past 40 years the most fun experience I've had on any book I've ever done and then what, what the icing on the cake for me mate is it turned out beautifully i mean the final product was everything i could ever dream in a, in, a, in a coffee table book it, i mean i've done those books before i did the film time books to uh, the movies coraline and stardust for neil um, a, a couple of years ago and i've done other movie guides the illustrated monster movie guides and uh, various things for titan books but this book i have to say is probably the best calling card I could ever have as an editor and as an author. I'm what, really, really, really proud of it.
1: What what was it about I mean obviously you you're your you're, um, you're, you're sort of you've done so much work in horror and and, and about horror. What what was it about this that fired you up? Because in a way, it sounds you sound like a com- well, the way you talk about the process. It sounds a combination of the, pe- the pebble hitting the water and all the ripples going out and them never stopping. Or in a way, you were almost like your own little butterfly wing, and then the, the repercussions of that butterfly wing. Uh, in- well,
2: you know that's yeah. The, the Ray Bradbury analogy is a good one. That's um, uh, one. Are- what did back at school, um, as you know, uh, back in the 60s, we I couldn't see films, uh, horror films. They were X certificate, which meant they were 16s. I was 12, 13, 14 at the time. There was almost nothing on TV. I mean, I know we live in an age of Blu-rays and DVDs and downloads now. Mm. But you've got to remember for, for us kids, us, us monster kids growing up, you know, we were born in the 50s. Um, You had very little chance, especially in Great Britain, to actually see any of this stuff. And so um, I started finding old copies of magazines in popular book centres and on market stores and things. And as I say, the first magazine I encountered that, that really brought this home to me was Forrest J Ackerman's Famous Monsters of Filmland. And again, what is great about my life is why I ended up working with Froy Ackerman for the last ten years of his life, um, and writing for Famous Monsters and other magazines he was involved in. But back then, you know, it was just a matter, you, you got the magazine, it was two and sixpence in a, in a news agent's or I think I think it was something like Treppence in a popular book centre. And there's all these incredible stills of Karloff and Lugosi and both Cheney's and Peter Lorre and George Zucco and John Carradine in all these great movies which weren't available to me. So the only way you could you could actually sort of learn about them and live them was through the magazines now and again there would be a movie come out in the cinema and it wouldn 't have an X certificate it would have an AE certificate or u certificate and you could go and see it so there were fantasy films, things like Tom Thumb, um, uh, The Shaggy Dog from Disney, these kind of things, which you could get in and see, and they had kind of horror, fantasy, science fiction elements. But the first double bill I actually saw at the cinema, which I count as horror films, but actually had used certificates, which meant everybody could go and see them, yeah. was City Under the Sea with Vincent Price and The Face of Fu Manchu with Christopher Lee. Which was in nineteen sixty five and they blew me away. I mean it was just like wow these, these this is my first horror double bill, even though it was for kids really mm. um, and from that point on, it never stopped. it just basically snowballed i mean when i was four, for my fourteenth birthday i uh, my parents gave me the money. To basically bunk into the cinema and see Quatermass in the Pit, even though I was two years <laughs> under, under age. Um, and my 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 bedroom at home was covered in original movie posters and flyers and pictures, and there were copies of magazines on the shelves and whatever. And it's literally grown from there. So when I say I've lived, I've literally lived horror all my life. I have. I mean, I also read science fiction. I also read fantasy. Um, it, back then, I, I mean, I still read, you know, mainstream fiction. But I used to read Westerns and spy books and things as well. But often there's connections. You make those connections in genres. I mean, I consider The Man from Uncle and, and certain James Bond films just as much fantasy as, I don't know. I mean, Harry Potter or, or that kind of stuff. You know, all this stuff is connected. All this, all this, books, films, comics plays it's all part of the theater of the imagination um it's just for some reason i've always been drawn to the darker side to the horror side um i've always found it a bit more spooky a bit more scary a bit more edgy um I, i find it kind of sparks the imagination a bit more maybe than some of the other genres i mean i still read them i still love them but horror is the thing i live and breathe 24 hours a day and i literally do that 24 hours a day i do since the late 80s i've done nothing else but horror and it's been great it's it's just wonderful
1: so what given 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 how much knowledge you came how much accumulated knowledge and experience you came with what were some of the discoveries for you then making this book
2: it was it, the interesting to me I I pretty much knew the big picture which is why I was quite comfortable putting my name on as an editor I I, I did the big picture like well, we need we need this we need this so if we do this this will lead to this and we can cover this and so basically the you know the whole book was put together in my head um, without any problem at all, it's, yeah. I, I used to be um, a movie publicist and do DVD um, you know, making of films and things for movies and things. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at actually seeing the whole thing mapped out in my head very easily doing the concept. Yeah. But um, what what I didn't know a lot of was the details was when you, when you talk about somebody and you go in and you look at what they were doing, um, the actors, yes, because obviously I, I knew all the actor stuff and the writers to a certain extent. But as I said earlier, it's with the artists. I mean, there was stuff... Um, when I, in the zombie chapter, for example, I knew that there was a book which was the first book that ever to mention zombies, which actually Bela Lagosi's White Zombie was based on. Okay. Um, and it was a travel guide. Basically, it wasn't a fiction book. It wasn't before it was basically a travel guide about the caribbean which actually mentioned zombies and the walking dead and everything else and this is what sparked off white zombie in 1931 32 uh which sort of like fictionalized a travel guide but what i did discover was that you know this book actually has some really interesting 1930s type 1920s actually illustrations and I had no idea who this guy was who illustrated this book. So I, I did some research. And again, as I say, to write a couple of 100-word uh, uh, captions, I probably spent four days researching them, which was crazy. Gee whiz. <laughs> but but I, I, I found out who this guy was. Then I discovered that he went on to do other things. Then I discovered that he was, he was, he was arrested in England and taken to court. Oh, and then came out again and this guy had this rich I mean you could probably write a, a biography just of this one guy and I had to take all this information which I'd learned for the first time and boil it down to a couple of paragraphs to the book. And that was the fun of doing it. I mean, it really, really was great. And as I say, I, it, I taught myself stuff. I discovered stuff I didn't know. And I'm hoping that people won't just see it as an art book, Stuart. I'm hoping people will see it as the subtitle that I wanted and insisted went on the book and illustrated history. And in fact, the French... I've done an edition which is out this month as well. And it actually is called uh, An Illustrated History of Horror on the French edition. They see it very much more as as, as as a textbook, as a guidebook to horror. And that's really what I wanted all along. I've always been a great believer that if we can attract younger people into the field of, the, of this kind of stuff. I know kids aren't reading as many books as they used to because there's too many distractions in the modern world with you know, games and and everything else. Yeah. But I kind of, in my head, I aimed this book at, at the 12-year-old Stephen Jones. If I'd got this book when I was 12 years, Old, and I could go up, go to my bedroom, and sit on the bed, and just leaf through it and look at the pictures. And some of it sticks, and I think, oh man, I won't mind seeing, you know, a Boris Karloff movie or a Christopher Lee movie or Peter Cushing movie. Um, that would be great. That would be great to actually interest the 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 me's that are out there now into into getting getting excited about this stuff I and mean, may get off and finding the books, you know. I wouldn't expect any twelve year old to go off and find Bram Stoker's Dracula or Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but there's other things they can go off and find and read, and it may lead to something else, you know? That's how we get our filmmakers, that's how we get our writers, that's how we get our artists. It's be it's it's being inspired at a certain age and that's staying with you forever. I mean it happened to me, it happened to Neil Gaiman, it happened to Kim Newman, it happened to all you know, all a lot of friends of mine, Clive Barker, whoever. Um, you know, we grew up with our heroes, and I've been very lucky to meet and know most of my heroes. You know, I've, I've been friends with Stephen King and Ray Bradbury and Robert Block and all these guys over the years. Um, and as I said, Forrest J. Ackerman, he was one of the greatest um, influences on my life. And so it would be nice, in a way, to be able to pass that information and that enthusiasm on to another generation so that these these films and books and art will still be happening in 100 years, 200 years' time.
1: If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. There is a lot, there's a lot in here that, that that moves it away from the traditional kind of coffee table read of the nice thing you flip through and look at the pictures because of the content you've you've either brought to it or the, the writers you've included what they've brought to each subject under the under the chapter headings and um, I mean I, I've only had a, I've only had a quick read through some of the stuff and and I've you know already kind of like you pick up new things and it's sort of. Um, just reading something as simple as what Kim Newman says about the fact that the werewolf isn't isn't sort of entrenched in any 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 literary l- literary history like Dracula and Frankenstein. Therefore, it has a different place in horror history. I'd never thought about it like that before.
2: Yeah, no, I mean absolutely. That's what that was one of the reasons I wanted to bring the experts in because I mean, if you write a book, obviously all the insights come from one person's point of view. Mm. Um, and what I did with the book was I wrote quite a lengthy historical introduction to kind of set the the scene as it were, yeah, and then these other guys these other guys just came in and did their thing now one of the great things about Kim is he can he can see something and and have a totally different perspective of it from most people out there that's what makes him such a great movie critic and and writer and and spokesman for the genre and so when I came with the original idea for the book i love this idea of making it, breaking it down to different genres so you could just dip in and out you don't need to read it from the front to the back you can pop in there spend a couple of hours tooting around looking at bits and pieces here and then go back in another time and find totally different pieces there Um, And and that's one of the strengths of the way the book is constructed. It's not a book you need to sit down and read from cover to cover. And, again, I'm not sure people have the time these days or the patience to do that. I mean, I would love it if they did, because there's a nice history to be told there. But you don't need to do that. You can just read one chapter and get what you need from that and then go back to it a couple of months later and read another chapter. Um, and, you know, it just adds to hopefully, people's knowledge. It hopefully adds to their... It, I mean, first and foremost, it has to be entertaining as a book and attractive as a book because um, I don't want people to be bored by it. I don't want people to, you know, to say, oh, God, I've seen that image so many times before or to say, oh, well, this, you know, this is just not very interesting. And I think all ten of the contributing writers absolutely nailed their sections. I mean, they they got it right. Because it's very difficult to boil, you know, the whole history of vampires down into 2,000 words or something or whatever it is in the book. (laughs) Um, And that's the skill of the writers, what I was saying earlier, Stuart. It's what it's what you leave out that makes a really good piece, not what you keep throwing in there. Mm. And I thought those guys did an incredible job on on telling their story, of making them interesting, and still imparting knowledge and 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 you know ways that things we may not have looked at before, things we not may not have thought about before. Um, I, as I said you, you know, earlier, horror is a fascinating subject. Horror is a great, great genre to work in because it is so imaginative, it is so interesting, and, and you can always find different elements to you know we're still i mean we're coming up to halloween now and you know there's gonna be a ton of stuff on tv and and in the movies and whatever and all of it's going to be different all of it's going to be interesting it might not always work you know i mean not always, it always might not always play out in the end but at least people are trying to do something different to reinvent things to do things in a different way and that's what i find fabulous about the horror genre
1: no, and I think because it's—I it, guess it's—it's it's always it's, the fact you give the example of watching a double bill that was—that was you that was certificate, sort of speaks volumes. I think for the sort of power of of horror as that kind of transgressive genre, as as the, that can that can almost like sl- uh, slip under the covers rather than always be there where everyone's going, oh yeah, that's obviously horror, and um, we we will we'll protect people from this. Oh yeah.
2: Well, friend Ramsey, Campbell and I agree that basically horror is probably the most subversive of all the genres. Yeah. I mean, you can get away, get away with pretty much anything in horror fiction. Um, uh, it's not quite true. You, know, you, you can do a horror romance. You can do a horror western. You can do a horror detective thriller. You can do a, a horror science fiction, whatever. It doesn't necessarily work the other way backwards. <laughs> so horror can come in anywhere. I mean, you know, Alien may be a science fiction movie, but it's also a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that same thing. You, you can get it in under the wire. You can get it, um, you can get it in... You, you can present it in ways where the reader or the viewer might not even be aware they're seeing something that's got horror on it. It would be appalled if they knew it was horror. Um, certainly when I was growing up as a kid in the mid-60s, of course, uh, the, the big thing for us was Doctor Who, which was technically... Clear children's program. It was basically science fiction because it's an old guy in a time-traveling box. Mm. But there was elements of horror in, in, in almost every episode at one time or another. I mean, recently I just saw this new version of Jekyll and Hyde that Charlie Higson has done, which is again basically supposed to be family viewing, but which is a terrific continuation of a an old-fashioned horror trope, um, dating back, you know, to the to 19th century and given a whole new 20th century spin on itself to make it something interesting, something different, yet still retaining those elements of horror. And that's the great thing. That's why genre has been so successful and so long-lasting is because it does have that ability to reinvent itself for new generations. So, you know, you'll have the universe, you have the silent movies, then you have the universal monster movies, then you'll have the Val Luton movies of the 40s, then you have the Hammer movies of the 50s and 60s, then you'll have the slasher movies of the 80s, you have the torture porn movies of the 90s, and so on and so on on so we managed to reinvent the genre every decade or whatever the, whenever the wheel turns and you know a new theme comes through and it and it now you know now i'm now i'm now much older than i was when i started but if you look around you it pervades everything in our lives um tv radio movies books games everything has now got horror in it um tv commercials even um you know the, things like the zombie is is now part of the is an image that so everybody in the world is used to uh, there was a time once when they said that the most um recognizable icons in the world were mickey mouse marilyn monroe james dean and the frankenstein monster um, and I think that's now true of zombies and vampires and all, and wolfmen and everything. Kids who have never seen the movies or read the books know who those characters are from cartoons or cereal packets or all sorts of things. I think it's wonderful. I think I mean, when I was this age, I, when I was you know there. I, I wish I had all this stuff around me.
1: I'm going to say I think you might have blown up if you'd have picked this book up when you were
2: twelve. Well, remember again, it's a matter of. This is, you know, this is the end of 40 years. It's not the beginning. This is stuff I've accumulated in that time. And now it's out of my head and on the page, which is a good thing. So it means that clears my mind to get on with other stuff and whatever. And, you know, we all hope when we do a book, the, the best thing we never hope for is that that book will be around after we're dead, that people will still be reading. Someone will pick it up, you know, on a, on a market store or a you know, you used book sale and just pick up you know, from 10p and think well wow, this is kind of interesting, I'll take a look at this and I, you know, it's kind of immortality, if somebody's still reading your work Years and years and years later, you've achieved what you wanted to achieve. I've been very lucky. Um, I've got books I published 20 years ago, which are still being reprinted now and are still coming out now. And that's what any writer or editor wants. We want to have our stuff out there forever. You don't want to be a flash in the pan, be very popular and just disappear. Um, I want my books to come out again in different editions or different translations throughout the world. And so they're always finding a new audience, a a younger audience, or a different audience or whatever. And again, as you know, I hope this book, The Art of Horror, reaches the widest possible audience it can and inspires people to go out and find other stuff that's in the book. That's, that's the best I could dream of.
1: Indeed. Well what what was when you when you were when you compiled it then what were the um, the sort of the combination of the must-have images and also most difficult at the same time, because I'm, I'm guessing some stuff is relatively easy to get hold of, but what were the kind of real sort of, red right as the lost art for you to try and get hold of that's in the book? Oh well, I mean,
2: we, we have some things in the book, which I mean, getting, getting permissions was, was difficult because there's so many different people you have to talk to, but luckily... Well, as I told you earlier, I I couldn't actually sit down and write this book myself, so I had a great team of people behind me. Mm -hmm. So not only did I have my publishers who were supporting me all the way through, but I had someone who was dealing with the rights. So they were dealing with the contracts and getting permissions to use all this material and dealing. Once I picked an artist or found an artist or whatever, they would go to that artists and do the contracts, everything else, I had to worry about. And I also had a managing editor, a guy called uh, Adam Newell, who I'd worked at with Titan Books on Film Books, who was an absolute godsend, because he and I were absolutely on the same page, literally from, from day one, um, and he was there as my backup he was finding material bringing it to me and to these do you think is better steve and what do you, you know we need to find this and whatever uh, and at the end of the day because my name's on the book the final decision was mine the final choice was mine and often i would say look you know we've got five or six great images from this film or this book and we can only use one so this is the one i'm going to go for now there might be several reasons for that one might be that it was the most iconic image, you know, from that particular thing.
1: Yeah.
2: Or another reason might be it might be the rarest image. Um, you know, as you said, asking your question, one of the things I'm delighted to have in the in book, actually, too, are these huge 12-sheet posters for Frankenstein and King Kong, which, you know, these things you could paper a wall with. They're so huge. <laughs> And to get like, and they 're rare, obviously you know these things the fact they've survived since the 1930s um, in such good condition is so rare and they' they're in private collections they're worth literally millions and millions of dollars really? and so to be able to get those they
1: were, sorry they're worth millions of dollars
2: millions of dollars wow, literally millions of dollars because they are literally possibly the only last surviving version of that film poster that's in a the world stand,
1: that's astounding
2: It is. And to be able to get those into the book so that people who don't have millions of dollars (laughs) can actually see them and enjoy them. And, and, you know, because the artwork is always different. I mean, one of the things that we point out in the book, especially with movies, is that they did a whole different range of movie posters. Um, So you would have things like are called one sheets, which is the standard American movie size. And there might be four versions of that. Then they would have something called an insert, which is a long, thin movie poster that would go in like a little side window in the cinema. There might be two or three of those. Then you have things that are called three sheets, six sheets, 12 sheets, banners. And these things are huge because they go on the outside of cinemas, they go on billboards. But of course, once they were finished with and the film had finished its run, most of this stuff was destroyed. It was torn down, it was bulked, it was destroyed. It was Nobody collected it. Nobody thought to collect it. It was trashed. Um, it was you know, sometimes obviously it was worn. It was damaged. It was it had been used. Maybe you know, while a film was out there for three months, then it would come back somewhere, and then when it was re-released, they'd use the same materials again, and it would just fall apart by the end of the day. So it, all this stuff was never meant to be kept. It was never meant to be to last longer than the life of the movie, as it were. Nobody had thought about. Publishing things in books, collectors, art galleries, auction houses selling them, DVDs, videos, whatever. They, none of this existed back then. For them, of course, this yeah. stuff was meant to last a year, two years, and then it was done. And you've got these wonderful pieces of art that were done as stone life, though, so the colors really pop, the printing process is pin sharp, but they were done. I mean, a 12-sheet, for example, to explain that, that's 12 one-sheet posters. So Yay. if you can imagine a poster that is basically the size of 12 single-sheet posters, as I say, there would be a billboard. So these 12-sheet posters, they normally came in, in pieces. They were so big, and they would have to put them together maybe out of six other sheets. But there's no way you could display this in most houses or whatever, so they were never kept. So just one or two of these things are found either you know, in the attics of houses, um, in a suitcase, in the case of the Frankenstein one, um, and, and sometimes as insulation in houses. Back in, the, back in America in the 1930s, they would pack movie posters in between the outside wall and the inside walls of houses as insulation because they made great insulation. <laughs> and when they tear some of these old houses down now... That's where they're finding this stuff, in between the walls, underneath the floorboards and if it's been kept dry, of course they're in perfect condition because you, you they've are, never seen sunlight, they've never you know, been touched by human hands and insects and they're finding, now and again amazing, amazing things that have always, almost been kept you know, in suspended animation for 50, 60, 70 so years. Acc-
1: so accidentally it's, preserved?
2: Accidentally preserved. That's absolutely to the right word, Stuart. Accidentally preserved. You know, nobody went out of their way to save this <laughs> stuff back then. I mean, there were a few collectors even back then. I mean, Forrest J Ackerman, a famous monster. He even as a, an annoying teenager, he would stand around outside the movie theaters and and the, and the, and the studios in Los Angeles and get anything he could. And back, then, this is another great example. So back then, when they finished a movie, they junked a lot of the props and the and the sets and things. Into, in, you know, to, into junk and they would just throw them out in these big skips outside the studios. So he would go around the studios and go through the skips and find all these makeups and, 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 and statues and things that had been used in the mummy or Dracula or whatever and keep them. And he created one of the greatest collections in the world of all this movie memorabilia, because it was the studios themselves felt it was worthless back then. They didn't. They didn't see any reason to keep it. They had warehouses full of stuff anyway. And so, in many cases, if they couldn't recycle it into another movie, they just junked it. And that's the same with a lot of this material as well. It was junked. Another great example is well, I'm a big book collector, and back in the 1930s and 40s. What people used to do is they'd buy a book, take the dust jacket off it, and throw it away so that when they put the book on the shelf, all their books looked exactly the same. No dust jackets, just some writing on the spine. Nowadays, it's the dust jackets which are worth the money on books. Really? So a book without a dust jacket is worth is worth a quarter of what a book with the original dust jacket on it will be worth.
1: Good lord.
2: Um, I, collect, I collect what are called photo plays, which are what we would call nowadays movie tie-ins. But people might be surprised to know that these go back to the very first silent movies. The book publishers in America and in England were publishing tie-in books to silent films, um, to early sound films. And this is true of all the great horror movies. There are tie-in books to Lon Chaney's Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Fantastic the opera to king kong to frankenstein to dracula to the invisible man all of these films had their own books um with movie stills in uh, they were novelized by people based on scripts of the films but you can pick them up reasonably cheaply on ebay mm. but if you get one with an original dust jacket it could be worth hundreds if not thousands of dollars they're, they're that they're that um collectible nowadays but still- back in the day of course they published thousands of these books. These were these were just popular books. They put them out there for a dollar or two dollars a piece, and yet you know over the years they've they've fallen apart. They've disappeared, and then that, they're now quite collectible. But again, we have examples of those dust jackets in the book, and they are beautiful pieces of work. I mean, the King Kong wraparound is one of the great classic dust jackets of all time. It, it's a, a complete wraparound, including the spine. Um, an original painting for the for the book. The Invisible Man um, has got a stunning dust jacket on, on that book, for example. And so as Murders in the Rue Morgue, the Bella Lugosi movie. So again, it was a way of showing people book covers they may never have seen, may yeah. never have known about or possibly can't even afford. Um, so yeah, yeah, but you know, there's hundreds of them, thousands of these images and we had to boil down to about, I think it's somewhere between five and six hundred we have in the book at the end of the day. So it's a matter of finding that key image and saying yes that's the one that sells it for me. It's either a beautiful image, it's a colourful image, it's a piece of art or it tells me something that something else won't tell me or oh my God, I've never seen that before in my life. Let's get it in the book.
1: One, one of the th- just just talking to you, Stephen, is it's it's um it's a real reflection of um, Neil Gaiman's forward in the book, where he talks about the. F- I think he, he he says that what the one thing you get from this is the fun of horror. Um, yes, and
2: I think that's very so important.
1: I was going to say it's not. It's maybe not what people might expect when you 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 say the word horror and then you add the word fun. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Should talk about what your plan is for launching this. I mean, it's people can, friends of mine have already pre ordered it. Um, but but you're having a launch event at Forbidden Planet in London, aren't you? On, on Halloween, so what's what's going to take place that day?
2: We are. Well, basically, um, the book, the, this edition of the book is the American edition of the book, but it's okay. being imported into this country,
1: okay?
2: Um, so it's, it's So this is basically a book that's published in America, and and they're bringing copies in and distributing them in this country. So it won't be in every single bookshop. It is available on Amazon Mm -hmm. and and various online sites, and they're doing incredible discounts on the book. Even at regular price, it's only £25 for the entire book, which is an amazing price for a book this size, with this amount of colour and quality and whatever. But to be honest with you, you can find it online for as low as £15. So, yeah, you can order it pretty cheaply. So if anybody's interested and wants to buy it, check online and see what what deals are out there at the moment. But this coming uh, Saturday is Halloween. Now, as you've probably realised from the last thirty or forty minutes, Halloween is kind of my Christmas. I imagine it's the it one is. time <laughs> of the year. <laughs> it's the one time of the year I have fun, and and as Neil says, you know, one of the great things we all get out of working in these genres is we try to have fun with them. We don't take them too seriously. It's it, it, it's it's our job, and we you know we do the best we can. But you've got to have fun with it occasionally. So this saturday in london at the forbidden planet mega store in shaftesbury avenue i've got 22 writers coming down between three o'clock and five o'clock in the afternoon uh, signing various books of mine which are out this halloween i've actually got 10 books out this halloween by bizarre circumstances and so i've got selections of authors and they're and they've obviously got their own books as well and and artists so we've got kim Newman and Barry Forshaw from the Art of Horror coming down to sign that book and their own books as well mm-hmm. and we've got a bunch of the artists who are coming down to sign the book as well and I'll be there as well and then we have all these other books as well you know with different writers in and they cross over and whatever so you know we're going to have Steve Crisp and Dave McKean and Les Edwards who've got artwork in the book they're all going to be there to sign copies on Saturday so if people want to come down and, and pick up a copy of the book or even to be honest with you bring some other books that these guys are in and get them signed they'll be very welcome because we're downstairs in the book area from uh three till five on saturday evening
1: wow when when do you you take over the world Stephen?
2: (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately i'm 40 horror is still perceived by most people to be a ghetto of literature we are under the radar as we said earlier i mean it's a subversive genre and I don't mind that. I mean, you know, I've never wanted to be a, a, a big-selling author with, or you know, with all that applies to it. I mean, I love my job. I sit, you know, I sit in my home office. I work on these things. This past weekend, I've just been to a convention in Nottingham with fellow writers and artists and editors and publishers, hanging out with mates at the bar and going out to dinner and talking about the work and things like that. And it's been great. And it's been a weekend off for me. It's a chance for me to relax, kick back. And also, you know, talk about next year and the year after and forthcoming projects and things like that. And and as I said earlier, you know, I live and breathe horror. You know, I've done most jobs in the genre at various times. I've been a publisher, I've been a publicist, I've been um, a, a movie guy, I've done all this kind of stuff. And so for me, it's just Nowadays, I just want to have fun with it. If I if I don't think I'm going to enjoy a project, I'm, I've got the ability to say no to turn it down. Yeah. And yet, unfortunately, as a freelancer, as I'm sure you appreciate, I get a little worried sometimes so i don't turn down anything normally because <laughs> you never know where the next project's going to come from so you you always find yourself saying oh well all right then I'll, I'll i'll do something and then what i try to do then is make it my own to have have a little fun with it make it a little bit different make it a little bit more interesting mix it up a bit and then hopefully that way the reader has fun with it as well they can that some of that comes through and then, you know, I mean, one of the things in Art of Horror, which anybody who's read Famous Monsters of Film Name will recognize, is there's an awful lot of puns in that book. Because I love having fun with puns. So even some of the titles of the chapters are puns. And um, as I say, if you can't have fun with it, then why bother? And so for me, that's what kept the book really interesting to work on. And I think for the writers and the artists as well, because they know at the end of the day, we are celebrating the horror field, and I and I and I couldn't imagine a better book to do it
1: with. No, and I think I think that's the perfect place to end. Actually, you're right. This is this is a celebration of of horror, and very do, much, sir. And in doing so, it's 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 become it's it's now been made into a comprehensive. Guy as well to horror at the same time. You know, there's there's so much in there. And in many senses, you're right. You, the hard bit is, is what to leave out. So therefore, it's also a stepping-off point for someone as much as it is a place to concentrate your thoughts.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I, the book could have been twice the size, three times the size. We had the imagery, we, we you know the wordage and whatever, but you have to package it in a way that is cost-effective. You know, if we had done a book that big, it would have been 100, a 150-pound book. Mm. And I want to get this book into as many people's hands, as many kids' hands as I can, so they have fun with it. So you, know, you have that compromise at the end of the day where you say, well, it has to be a certain size, it has to be a certain format, and that way we can keep the price point down, we can make it very easily accessible to people, people can afford it for Christmas or Halloween presents and whatever um, you know, and that's what I'm always looking at with all my projects I, wa- I want people to read these stories, I want people to see these films, I don't want to put people off with by making it collect- you know, too expensive or too rarefied or whatever, so although you know we say coffee table book or art book really at the end of the day this is just a fun book of pictures and, and stuff that kids and other people can get into and go, wow, wow, this is kind of cool. I want to see more of this. I want to learn more about this. So I hope that comes across in the book. It certainly seems to have so far. The reviews have been wonderful. And, you know, if people want to come and meet some of the people who create this stuff, then come down to Forbidden Planet on on Saturday and and hang out. And, you know, we're just normal people. We like you a pint of beer afterwards, like a nice chat, happy to sign our names in books, talk to people, give advice, that kind of thing.
1: So that's Saturday the 31st of October at Forbidden Planet and it's from, what, 2 o'clock till about 5 o'clock? 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock. 3 o'clock till 5 o'clock. And then we're we're all going
2: to the pub afterwards.
1: OK, that sounds like a fun day. Well, look, thank you very much for uh, for lending us your time and coming on to talk about this book. I, I, for one... I, I, from what I've got out of you so far, I, I, I think it's fantastic. i and i I recommend it to a friend of mine, and he's already ordered it. So it's kind of like I'm passing I'm passing on the good vibes as best I can. Fantastic.
2: Okay. Well, thank you, Stuart. I've had, I've had a ball talking to you. It's been a really interesting time. I've really enjoyed myself. So thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: It was it was my pleasure. Honestly, honestly. <laughs> If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently.